so there are two featured announcements uh, today, and the, the first uh, has to do with uh, those who are caring for those with memory loss. This is, a, this is specifically an announcement for primary and secondary caregivers. Uh, on February the 22nd, CPC's Stephen Ministry is going to uh, sponsor a seminar on caring for those with memory loss, and uh, it will feature a panel of experts. There will be uh, plenty of time for Q&A uh, for, for any questions uh, you might have or insight you might feel that you are lacking uh, for this uh, incredible, sometimes ominous calling of, of being a caregiver. Uh, and it's going to start at 6 p.m. Uh, again on February 22nd. No registration is necessary for this one, and the details are in your bulletin. And then the uh, second featured announcement this week has to do with the uh, Broken and Free event that's happening this coming Friday at 7 p.m. here in the CPC Sanctuary. It's chiefly uh, a women's uh, event. It's going to be sponsored uh, by Compassion International and also hosted by CPC's Women's Ministry. And uh, I actually got a couple of emails this past week uh, asking if men could come, uh, uh, you know, because, you know, we've got uh, three, you know, one musician, a couple of speakers who are, are pretty well-known uh, coming, Ann Voskamp, uh, Rebecca Lyons, and also Christy Knuckles, who've been doing, doing the music. Uh, men are welcome, but just recognize you'll be in the minority in all likelihood uh, for that. Uh, and for this, registration is required, and all of the details are there. Uh, in your bulletin for that. So, uh, without further ado, I'll invite Steve Young forward to read our scripture for us this morning. <clears throat> our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard it said, uh, sorry, let me start again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to Christ. Christ. So if this is your first time visiting Christ Presbyterian, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture to introduce you to our church with. Uh, Self-mutilation, hell, lust, gouging out your eye, cutting off your hand. Um, Maybe it's passages like this that, that get Christianity a bad rap uh, when it comes to uh, Christianity's teaching on sexuality, or at least what we assume Christianity's teaching might be. Uh, this past week, uh, you may remember uh, Valentine's Day happened, and on Valentine's Day, uh, there were four Valentine's cards electronically that hit my inbox, and uh, these are what those four cards said. Number one, Roses are red, violets are blue, and neither is useful or necessary at all. <laughs> Wake up, folks. Number two, I need you to help raise livestock and crops or surely we will starve to death come winter. 
Number three, you almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. <laughs> and then lastly, number four, being with you fills me with impure thoughts, and I'm ashamed. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. So, since the 1960s, we've had this thing called the sexual revolution, and it's still going strong. It's still shaping the way that we think, uh, not only about culture, not only about sexuality, but about human identity itself. And the message of the sexual revolution is this, remove the limits, remove them all. If you have two or more consenting human beings, remove the limits. And in this environment, the people's understanding, and we would include ourselves perhaps in the people, of Christianity's teaching about sexuality might come across uh, when put up against the sexual revolution as oppressive, psychologically harmful. Perhaps some would even regard Christian teaching as evil, dehumanizing, and at the very least, unreasonable. So, the New York Times did a piece uh, several years ago, and the, the title of the piece was Students of Virginity. And it was a bit of a misleading title because it was all about the hookup culture that currently exists on college campuses throughout the United States in particular. And there was a particular student from Harvard University that was quoted in this article from the New York Times, and, and her words were these, to say that I have to care about every person I have sex with is an unreasonable expectation because it feels good. Now, what Jesus would say, uh, based on teachings like the one in front of us today, which says that it's not merely about getting into bed with somebody, but, but even having uh, fantasizing thoughts about that kind of thing happening, uh, this kind of talk about hookup culture and, 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 and sexual freedom, so to speak, because it feels good, is as foolish, Jesus would say, as it would be to start going on and on about the virtues of cocaine. There are things in the world that make a person feel good for a season of time that will ultimately lead to decay and destruction and addiction and brokenness and all of these other things. It is a mistake of the highest order to think that the, uh, the view of the sexual revolution about sexuality represents a high view of sex. It actually represents the lowest possible view of sex, that as long as you have two or more consenting human beings, then it should be fine. What's missed there in that message is that just like you know, inflammation and LDL cholesterol, there's a silent killer going on, and you don't know that it's killing you until you're dead. You know, today, what I want to do is uh, hopefully accomplish two goals um, you know, in speaking about this passage. One is to help us recover the robust biblical teaching on sexuality. 
And second, to help us see that this idea of freedom as defined by the sexual revolution actually leads to slavery, not to freedom, actually leads to bondage rather than cutting us loose to flourish. The biblical teaching has been hijacked, and it's been hijacked in in a number of ways. It's been hijacked by religious moralists who would want us to think that sex is a bad thing, and it has been hijacked by non-religious secularists who would have us to think and believe that sex is everything. So let's see what Jesus says to the religious moralists to the non-religious secularist, and also to everyone. By the way, all of us carry around a moralist and a secularist. All of us have worldviews that, 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 that when put together, depending on the different subject matter, matter either, you know, like Luther talked about, uh, will cause us to fall like a drunk man to the left of the horse or off the horse to the right, you know, depending on our perspective on the specific subject matter. So, so when we're talking about sexuality… We're either going to be uh, like the religious moralist or like the non-religious secularist, typically. But let's focus on the religious moralist first, who would have us to believe that sex is bad. A a surface reading of a passage like this, it it, it makes it understandable, doesn't it? it? That the the religious moralist would say, hey, let's just stay away from any form of eroticism altogether because words like lust, hell, hell, dismemberment are being used by Jesus. I mean, the, 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 the takeaway is to stay away, right? And, and uh, you know, there was this uh, third century uh, church father, biblical scholar named Origen of Alexandria, who took this uh, text from Jesus in a very hyper-literal way, and, and, and what he did was he made himself into a eunuch, took a blade, got the job done. And very, very soon after this, the Council of Nicaea in AD 325 declared that it was forbidden for Christians to do this to themselves because it was an improper interpretation of the text. I wonder how Origen must have felt after that ruling from the Council of Nicaea. It's like Alanis Morissette's ironic, you know, it's like the free ride when you've already paid, it's, it's like the good advice that you just didn't take. Poor origin, right? This is extreme language that's spoken to us by Jesus in the form of hyperbole. He does this quite often. A hyperbole is a linguistic strategy to, to overstate a point in order to emphasize how essential it is that we get the message, how important it is that we understand the teaching. You know, Dan Doriani, who's a, um, a professor and New Testament scholar at Covenant Theological Seminary, says this about Jesus' hyperbolic statements here. Jesus sometimes used repugnant, grotesque images to show how repugnant and grotesque sin is in His sight. And then there's Richard Rohr, who's a Catholic priest. Uh, by the way, most of the authorities that I will be quoting are single people unmarried, uncoupled people. Richard Rohr, who has lived all of his life as a single man, said this, it is not sexuality, but our way of seeing sexuality that demands radical surgery, that demands to be cut off 
It's our way of seeing it. It's not the thing itself. Or John Stott, a, a, a theologian and minister from the UK who spent all of his life as a single man, never married, never engaged sexually, never had an erotic experience with another human being. He said this, if temptation comes through your eyes, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. <laughs> Behave as if you had plucked your eye out. But don't pluck your eye out. You know, it's like what Job said in the oldest book in the Bible. He says that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully on women. You know, the idea here is intentionality, it's self-control, it's self-discipline versus self-maiming. It's not that. You know, sex is a lot like fire. Erotic love is a lot like fire. It does more than destroy. There's actually a life-giving context in, 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 in which it it, 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 it creates safety and warmth and protection and, and the elimination of, of bacteria and, and the elimination of, of viruses and disease and such. Fire in its proper context is life-giving, and the same is the case with sexuality. From Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation where you've got a bride coming down out of heaven, you know, beautifully adorned for her husband, the context for, for, for human eroticism is inside the covenant, the lifelong covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Only outside of this context will human eroticism cause violence to the human soul. But inside marriage, here's what we need to understand. Here's what the religious moralist in, in us that, that wants to believe that sex is bad. Here's what Origen, oh, if Origen only knew this before he performed that irreversible act. Inside marriage, the biblical vision for marriage is so erotic, it would make anyone blush. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and you see that sex was God, one of God's very first inventions. It was one of God's very first gifts that, 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 that He gave to naked Eve and naked Adam after God gave naked Eve to naked Adam in order to resolve the malediction, in order to resolve the negative word that was spoken into paradise, that it's not good for this dude to, to be by himself. He needs some completion here. And so God gives a naked woman to this naked man, and, 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 and Adam's reflex is to recite poetry and compose poetry on the spot and, and then put it to a melody and sing it. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. You know, it's as if Adam is saying, I've finally found myself. I've finally found completion because of the she that was just given by my maker. And then what does God do? He sends Adam and Eve to the bedroom and says, I want you to go. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to, to multiply. Man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, naked and unashamed. That's the Bible. Proverbs 
says to husbands, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be intoxicated, be drunk with her love all the time. Song of Solomon, it's a book in the Bible. The whole book, the whole book is a husband and a wife reciting poetry, singing love songs about one another's naked bodies. It's, it's, several, it's multiple chapters. It's several God-inspired chapters of verbal foreplay. Song of Solomon. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, also a single man, says to able-bodied husbands and wives, do not deprive each other of the erotic experience. Her body, it belongs to him. His body, it belongs to her. There's reciprocal ownership of one another's bodies for your good. And so just as the Harvard student that I quoted just a minute ago and the sexual revolution have way, way too low of a view of sex, so do Ward and June Cleaver, friends. Remember Leave it to Beaver where Ward and June... You know, the camera goes into their bedroom and they've got separate, you know, twin beds on opposite sides of the room. That's just as far from the heart of Jesus as the sexual revolution is. You know, there's a moralistic way of, 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 of approaching biblical ethics and there is a non-religious secularist way. And either way, you've fallen off drunk on one side of the horse or the other. Either you're drunk on your religion or you, you're, you're drunk on your irreligion. But either way, it's a silent killer one way or another. So, so the non-religious secularist, what does Jesus say to the non-religious secularist who, who believes that sex is everything, who, who, would, who would want us to believe that sex equals identity, that sexuality equals identity, that sexuality equals personhood? The one thing Jesus would want us to do first and foremost is to look at him. Jesus, the most complete human being ever to exist, ever to live, ever to have a heartbeat, ever to have sexual feelings. The most complete human being ever never had a romantic relationship, never got in bed with another person. Or Paul who is in many ways our chief mentor uh, in the New Testament in, in matters pertaining to sexuality, in matters pertaining to marriage, in matters pertaining to singleness, the same experience as Jesus. Didn't marry, didn't get into bed with somebody else. So we've got to ask ourselves then, if Jesus didn't need sex, okay, he's God, but Paul was not God. And he was somehow able, like it says in Philippians, to, to, to find the secret of contentment. In his non-erotic life, even as a sexual being. How is that the case? And why is it that sex seems to have so much power over us, over culture, over our, our writing, our literature, over our music, over our art forms? You know, think about what's in your playlist, in your iTunes, or if you're way past that, you know, maybe you're a teenager and it's, all, it's Spotify now. It's all about the streaming, right? iTunes was so yesterday. That's what your mom and dad do with their phones. Well, whatever your playlist is, iPhones, um, Spotify, cassette tapes, songs about love 
Isn't this true? Songs about love, they saturate every single genre. How many love songs are on your latest album, Jeremy? How many? Probably quite a few, right? They saturate every genre, and even the cheesy, unrealistic, untrue love songs hit the top of the charts. Remember this one? Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, stronger than any mountain cathedral, I've been in love with you. Really? Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean? Dan Fulgerberg was 28 years old when he, he, he released this song. There had surely been fishes in the ocean longer than that. But we'll embrace and, 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 and purchase and download and, and listen to and, and put on repeat over and over and over songs that are just out of grasp, or, or we know they're not true, but they evoke something in us that we know we're made for. Why? Because God has put eternity in the human heart. You know, how many songs do we have on our playlist that are about our love affair with football or, or, or how much, you know, how drawn we are to a medium rare steak or, or, or songs about a pair of shoes or songs about our jobs or, or, or our computers or our handheld devices. You, you, there aren't songs that are hitting the top of the charts and staying there about these things. What makes love and sex so different? It's that eternity has been placed in the human heart. It's right there in Ecclesiastes. Sex, I, I, I'm, not sure there's an, a, a, I'm not sure there's an argument that can defeat this argument. Sex is the most infinite experience that, that a finite person can enter into, that a finite creature can, can, can enter into. It is the most transcendent experience that earthbound creatures can enter into. Maybe this is why, you know, the transcendence of it all, maybe this is why Jesus was so compassionate with sexually damaged people. Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, the woman caught in adultery in John 8, the prostitute who, who barged into a Pharisee's dinner party in order to encounter Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Rahab the prostitute, Bathsheba who slept with David in spite of being married to Uriah the Hittite, Tamar, all of these listed affirmatively in the genealogy of Jesus, never once shamed or scolded in the Scriptures or by Christ Himself. The only scolding Jesus ever does in these instances, it seems, is, is toward the, those who are scolding the sexually damaged people. Jesus scolds the scolders. Why do the sexually damaged people get off the hook? And the Pharisees get read the riot act by Jesus. I think the key is in this word Gehenna. Some of your, 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 your English translations will translate this hell. Others will translate it the, the trash heap. But Gehenna was the garbage dump outside Jerusalem where people would discard their trash and refuge, and it would rot and decay, and there would be worms and flies and all kinds of corrosion. And whenever human life is diminished, whenever what happens externally, the erosion that happens externally on the Jerusalem trash heap starts to, starts to happen in a human soul, whenever a human life is diminished in any way, Jesus gets visceral. 
Did you ever notice that? Wherever there's poverty, wherever there's illness, wherever there's addiction, wherever there's bullying, wherever there is promiscuity, anything that does violence to a human soul created in the image of God, Jesus gets visceral. He goes on attack. He bows up. And so don't, don't, don't for a minute think that this harsh language from Jesus is motivated by anything but compassion and rescue. In the same way that, that, that you and I would, would scream at the top of our lungs if we saw a young child starting to run out into a busy street. It is compassion and rescue from our Maker who is zealous on, 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 on rescuing us from our self-made prisons. How trapped are we really? How bad is it really? Is anybody really getting hurt by this? I think the pornography ep epidemic and the statistics around it answer that question quite easily. A whole culture, a whole industry built upon objectification and human slavery, both figurative and literal. And those of you who are fighting against sex trafficking understand what I'm talking about. There is more money spent on pornography in any given year than is spent on the big three sports combined, baseball, basketball, football. Just to put that in perspective, one 30-second Super Bowl advertisement just a couple of weeks ago cost $5 million. Okay, so, so take all the marketing and advertising for an entire year, take all of the merchandise, take all of the ticket sales, take all the Cokes and Diet Cokes and, and you know, funnel cakes and, you know, all that other super healthy, you know, whole food stuff, um, you know, that, that they sell in the stadiums. Add it all up, more is being spent on porn. But it's a silent killer because we don't talk about it. You know, Russell Brand, who is a, a Hindu, a Krishna Hindu comedian from the UK. What a combination. Incredibly insightful video he decided to just spontaneously put out there. He took this video of himself on his iPhone and he started pontificating about the impact of pornography. Listen to this. Tell me if this doesn't sound like Jesus. Tell me if this doesn't sound like the common grace that the theologians talk about that all truth and beauty come from God regardless of the conduit? Listen to this. How similar does this sound to Matthew 5? Russell Brand, our attitudes towards sex have become warped and perverted and have deviated from sex's true function as an expression of love and means for procreating. Because of our acculturation, because of the sexual revolution culture, the way that we've designed and experienced sex has become really, really confused. <clears throat> I heard a quote from a priest who said that pornography is not a problem because it shows us too much. It's a problem because it shows us too little. Pornography is making it impossible to relate to our own sexuality, our own psychology, and our own spirituality. Pornography is a drug. It's not good for me. It represents voyeurism, obsession with looking at women versus interacting with women. Objectification, fear of true intimacy. I do not like porn. I haven't been able to make a long-term commitment to not looking at it. It's affecting my ability to relate to women, to myself, 
to my own sexuality, to my own spirituality. He's saying, it enslaves me. It's a silent killer. You don't know it's grabbing you around the neck until it's grabbed you around the neck unless you listen to wisdom. The wisdom that tells you something different than what your libido tells you. You know, imagine if you go into a doctor and the doctor diagnoses you and says, I'm afraid I've got some bad news and some good news. The bad news is you're diabetic. The good news is if you eliminate sugar from your diabetic you're, you're, or from your, from your diet, you're going to be fine. But you must eliminate sugar from your diet or it's going to kill your body. I mean, could you imagine, you know, responding to the doctor, how dare you? You're taking away my rights to eat sugar. How dare you say that you can eat sugar, but I can't? Or they can eat sugar, but I can't? Of course we don't do that. Why? Because we trust our doctors. We trust them. And we say, okay, I'm going to make some adjustments because my desire to live is, exceeds my desire for a sugar high. And here we have God, our maker, the one who, you know, he, he made us and he made us for himself. And he says in a similar way, eliminate non-marital sex from your diet or it will kill your soul in the same way that sugar will kill the body of a diabetic. Why on earth would we listen to a doctor and not listen to our maker? on these things because we've evolved, because, you know, we're, we're sexual revolution post-enlightenment people, because we're not culturally regressive like Ward and June Cleaver. Guess what? All the objectification that happens right now, all the slavery that's accepted in the sex industry and in pornography in order to get product to you through the screen, the world of Ward and June Cleaver would say, that is freaking oppressive, folks. That is dehumanizing, folks. That does violence to a soul. Are we moving forward or are we moving backwards? This brings us to the last thought. To everyone, sex is a pointer, but it's not the point. You know, we have a dog named Lulu, and she's in some ways very insightful and in some ways very stupid. Sometimes... I'll, I'll give her a treat, like a really good, you know, you know, like bone. Like she likes deer antlers, you know, and stuff like that. Like a deer antler, wet your appetite before lunch. But I'll point over. I'll say, "There's your feast right over there," and she'll start sniffing my finger. Here's what Richard Rohr, again, a, a Catholic single man, says about celibacy, about his own celibacy. He's probably somewhere in his late fifties or sixties now. Healthy celibates learn how to live their loneliness, live with their loneliness until their erotic longings become the ultimate longing, which is a longing for God. This is precisely the same place that existential philosopher Camus was coming from when he said, because I long for eternal life, because I was looking for the transcendent, because I was the finite, seeking the infinite, I slept with prostitutes. What was the outcome for Camus? Camus tells us, but my soul awoke after that experience to the bitter taste of the mortal state. My soul awoke to Gehenna, 
My soul awoke to the trash heap. Because I was sniffing the finger instead of savoring the feast. I mean, if you can imagine it, the most erotic experience that you could imagine, the most erotic experience that you have ever had or ever will have with another human being is like a food sample at Costco when you put it next to the intimacy and the rapture that awaits you in Jesus. You know, the Song of Solomon is, newsflash, secondarily about erotic love between a man and a woman. It's completely blessed within marriage, but it's secondarily about that, and it's primarily a description of the love into which Jesus invites his bride, the church. Is that irreverent? I don't think so. It's in the Bible. God inspired it. And if you don't believe the Bible, then maybe the Heidelberg Catechism will do for you. If you're coming from a religious moralist perspective, maybe you'll embrace a catechism more than you'll embrace the Song of Solomon. Here's what Heidelberg says. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Are you in? If the answer is yes, then if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, but not literally. We have a table in front of us, a table accomplished by a bridegroom, a bridegroom who was stripped naked and thrown on the trash heap so that a standing invitation would would be there for us to come to a table where he gives us his body where the husband gives his body to his bride. This is the table that asks us the question, why settle for objectified images when you have the ultimate reality already? Why settle for a binge on The Bachelor when you've already got the ultimate rose given to you by the one who loved you and gave himself for you through the thorns? Why settle for 50 shades of gray when you've been washed whiter than snow and left naked and unashamed before your Maker? Why keep sniffing the finger when the feast is in front of you? This table, it's a a rehearsal dinner that prepares us, that whets our appetite for the wedding feast of the Lamb and the consummation between the bridegroom and his bride, the church. Profound mystery, Paul says, but no less true. And it's this feast even that can transform a cheesy, unrealistic love song. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, says the 28-year-old billboard top-of-the-chart artist. But at this table, these lyrics become true. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean because he created the ocean and he put the fish there higher than any bird ever flew because he gave the wings to the birds, stronger than any mountain cathedral because he gave his life naked on a mountain for his bride. Who do we share this table with? 
among others, prostitutes and pornographers like David and like Rahab and like Mary Magdalene and like the woman caught in the act of adultery to whom Jesus says, I do not condemn you, now go leave your life of sin. This is the rehearsal dinner for whores that Jesus intends to turn into his queen. Are you qualified to come to the table? You've got to be a whore to come here. But you've got to have a receptivity to the fact that he's loved you out of that place by getting naked on the trash heap in order to clothe you and keep you from the trash heap. Throughout this sanctuary, you're going to hear noise as the Lord's Supper is happening. That's very intentional. If you've not celebrated the supper with us, it's very intentional because this is a communal moment. This is a moment where we're intentional with each other around the table as well as in our seats to speak a word, maybe one thing that the Lord has impressed on you today, or to receive a word if you, if you just don't have words to speak. Uh, and of course, just remaining quiet in your seat is, is, is a, is, is a perfect, perfectly fine option as well. But then there are also going to be people available on both sides of, of the stage to pray with anybody who desires or needs prayer. And so as the servers come forward and as the children return, I want to invite all of us to turn our eyes and our hearts to the screen. For the Book of Common Prayer, and this is a prayer for the seventh Sunday after the Epiphany. O Lord, who has taught us that all our deeds done without love are nothing, send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love the very bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for your only Son, Jesus Christ's sake, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Now let's take a moment of silence to confess, to give thanks, and to reflect, and then Pastor David will lead us to the table here momentarily.